Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. As always, I'm your host, Laura Boyle, and this week we are here to talk about abuse in polyamory part three. This week's subtopic is survivorship in the polyamorous community, and I'm here with Sydney Ray Chin to do a sort of interview and discussion of what the process of integrating into the polyamorous community after surviving abuse is like, and in fact, sort of what it's like when you experience abuse in a polyamorous relationship, and also sort of healing in new relationships after experiencing polyamorous abuse. We talked about this a little bit in the interview with Alicia in part one, but we're going to be more explicitly focusing on that in this episode. So just as a content warning, this episode is a little bit more explicit in terms of community response to folks expressing their truth about relationships in which they experienced abuse. So if that's going to be triggering to you, you may choose not to listen to this. Once again, we are not super explicit about the types of abuse experienced, but we are relatively explicit about people's reactions or about sort of community reaction or people's dismissal or um, acceptance of truths being presented to them about survivors' experiences in both of our cases. Um, so if that's going to be a problem for you to listen to, you may choose not to listen to this episode or to listen to it when you have time and energy to sort of give yourself better self-care. That said, I really appreciate Sydney coming on to talk to me about this. You may know them from the internet under their handle, Sexy Soup Dumplings. They had formerly worked as a non-monogamous educator and are currently working as a chef and pleasure curator in the greater Philadelphia area. Um, I will include all of their links in the show notes if you're interested in reaching out to them for any of the services they offer. Um, and here is my interview with Sydney. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I know today we're talking about kind of a heavier topic as I sort of warned listeners at the opening. Um, but I think it's a really important one for us to give more visibility to. Uh, we're talking about abuse in polyamory and the reception that we get as survivors of abuse in our polyamorous communities. Yeah, like it's definitely something that I've contended with since I started in survivorship work and then pivoted to polyamory. It's like such a stigma still to like say that you're a survivor. And then there's this like whole misconception that like, oh, survivors like can't do non-monogamy, which I'm like, that's so untrue because I know so many people who are survivors that are non-monogamous. Yeah, I feel like for a lot of people, because polyamorous folks are so focused on sort of self-work and healing and all of these things, right? Healing our attachment wounds and doing all of these things, there's a little bit of a sense within our community that if we're also working on healing from trauma and healing from the issues that have made us survivors in the first place, that perhaps non-monogamy isn't where we belong. And yeah. as someone who not only is a survivor, but 
is a survivor from within a non-monogamous context, I kind of just want to make it really clear to our listeners that that's okay and that they're really valid if that's where they're coming from. Yeah. Also for me, so I am a survivor in a non-monogamous context, like college hookup culture, which obviously is not the same, but there was definitely like a non-monogamous aspect to that particular survivorship moment that I had. And then also uh, relationship abuse and intimate partner violence, where there was again, a monogamous aspect, but we Mm -hmm. were fairly monogamous, but it was like my identity or my perceived identity that I wanted to fulfill, but didn't in that relationship was used against me. Mm -hmm. This sense of those of us who have expressed that we are polyamorous by orientation or that we'd like to be non-monogamous can have that used against us in relationships as an excuse for intimate partner violence. Yeah. And those are like the two experiences that I can think of that like really translate to this realm. So what kinds of experiences have you had in sharing this information? Because I know on your platform, you've been pretty public about these experiences. So at least in like dating apps, people, Mm. particularly, it's always cis men who say this, like, I'm sorry. And I'm just like, dude, it happened. Like, there's nothing that I can do about it, but move forward. And so like, that's a reaction that I've gotten. And then I feel like a lot of content on the internet, right? On Instagram, especially from other polyamorous people, it's Mm -hmm. very like black and white when like, especially around jealousy, that's what like gets me fired up. Like, okay, yes, there's, yes, jealousy is a thing and people deal with that and like move through that. But also like, it's not this like either or thing, like it's a spectrum and you can be jealous about like one aspect where it's like, one aspect makes you feel more secure. Like it's not like, I really hate the black and white thinking that some people perpetuate on their platforms. Cause that, that's just not real. And also it's not necessarily the most inclusive to victim survivors who have different things that like your brain chemistry literally fucking changes when you have PTSD or CPTSD. So like there's certain things that are just not the same after you survive intimate partner violence or sexual violence or both right and i'm really catching in what you said on this idea of security that we put so much stock in in a lot of education around non-monogamy and around a lot of the like influencer culture in non-monogamy is around sort of building security in our relationships and for a lot of us who have had these experiences complete security isn't a thing we're going to achieve necessarily, right? Like I enjoyed Polysecure by Jessica Fern because of this idea of earned secure attachment and the idea Mm -hmm. of it being a temporary state that you like get to and sometimes you get out of it and need to re-regulate toward it. And it's something you are in flux in and out of in every individual relationship because it made me feel less broken as an individual than a lot of this other stuff that I'd read on the topic. Yeah. Polysecure was actually another book that I've been listening to an audiobook, and that really helped me feel seen as a survivor. But 
other books out there. I mean, I haven't read all the books out there because <laughs> reading is just hard as a survivor with PTSD. I'm like, I can't read. I need to listen to something to mm-hmm. like fully grasp it. But with like other content that I've seen on the internet, it's very, it's not very welcoming to survivors or victims. And it's very much like, this is the way that it's got to be done. And I'm like, wait, 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 that's not my reality. That's never going to be my reality as someone who has CPTSD, who has flare-ups, especially when it comes to traumaversaries, because like that's like something that I have to keep check of every year or every year in like different times of the year, which is really frustrating. Because <laughs> like you can have a great time in like your relationships, but still have that come up, and it can still affect your relationships. And people, I don't think people realize that, <laughs> and that it's not as easy as like media makes it seem to be a survivor or victim right you can become really activated at certain times of year and have triggers that you feel like you've worked through in therapy or you feel like you've worked to minimize in your life suddenly be much bigger again around these times that are as you've pointed out trauma anniversaries or um even just if there's other stress in your life suddenly all of these reactions are much bigger because our nervous systems are working harder. Uh, A lot of folks have read The Body Keeps the Score as like one of the books that actually talks about trauma and how our nervous system holds on to it. Um, And I really recommend that people who are having trouble understanding their friends or their partners who struggle with this read or listen to that book because it gave me a much better understanding of what was going on with me and why there were cycles of when things would just flare up for me. Yeah, for me, I read that book very early on, maybe like about three years ago. I like read Mm -hmm. a couple excerpts and it was really affirming at that time because I like for a while I thought I was like broken or like crazy because I'm like, wait, no one else goes through this or people who do go through this don't necessarily talk about it publicly because it's so there's so much stigma both inside of the community of non-monogamy but also outside of it you're already like stigmatized and like ostracized because like who's gonna believe you well right and it seems like there's a in scare quotes sort of way to recover that we're expected to kind of follow by society or by our peers, right? Like we have a certain amount of time that people are giving us space to grieve or to heal or to move forward into new relationships that are supposed to somehow through their relational power heal us. And then if we're not performing those new relationships and healing and growth appropriately, our family and friends and new relata just get frustrated with us after a certain point. Yeah, I've noticed that with like some folks within the community. I luckily haven't experienced that because both of my partners are really understanding of that and like hold space for that. But obviously that's a very much like a rare experience as I've heard from other folks. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's like, a privilege in some ways to be able to have people that understand that that 
are willing to have those hard conversations and also know it's not about them. Mm -hmm. And I think over time, this has been getting better, right? Like, I think I have better experiences in the last several years than I had for the first few. And I don't know if that's just because those first few were closer to the traumas and the abusive relationship that sort of caused them, or if it's because things are sort of generally getting better socially. Um, I also moved cities in the middle of it, and in fact, countries. So it may be like, who's more aware of what where? Although I doubt it, because generally, the United States has not been socially ahead of Canada on any of these issues that I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. But in this one sense, like I think over time, people are just becoming more aware of these things, right? Um, yeah, I so think there's that. And then like the, you know, the old adage, time heals wounds or whatever. I feel like th that's definitely true to an extent, but also at the same time, like, yeah, you're going to have flare ups. Like I had a flare up like a couple weeks ago and it was just like, oh my God. And I didn't, what I did was do nothing that way. Cause I was like, you know what? My body just needs to chill. Like I need to just do the least amount of stuff. Right. Like I have specific trauma anniversaries in March that I like try to ignore every year because every year I think that it's not going to be a problem this year. Um, more than a decade later, I know better and know that it's still going to be a problem. Um, but I still pretend that it's not going to until a couple days before. And then I go, wait. <laughs> And uh, sight gags, you guys, I have thrown both my arms out and braced myself on the weight. Um, but just, it's one of those things where even if we're emotionally prepared, new people that we're relating to, if we happen to not time ourselves well or whatever and meet someone right before something like that, it can sort of throw a bomb into new friendships, into new connections that we're not sure where they're going. And sometimes, regardless of sort of fairness or unfairness, the world isn't a fair place. That can be, I don't know, an extra sprinkle of awful on a difficult time. Oh, definitely. Like, I think during my traumaversary this month or earlier this month like I just like was like okay I'm just going to talk to people on apps but not meet them because I'm not emotionally ready right now right it's one of those things where once we admit what's going on it's easier for us to time ourselves and kind of prepare ourselves for the care that we actually need and the more honest and self-aware we are about it the better we do Within our community, there is a lot of like, non-monogamous people are more enlightened than monogamous people, so we're less abusive kind of conversations that happen. But at the same time, I think abuse happens at sort of a similar rate, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens then when people come forward and try to talk about abuse that they're experiencing? I feel like what I've seen since I'm not necessarily been in a situation, but what I've seen from like various things that have happened in our community, especially with like certain authors um, that people should stay away from mm -hmm. <laughs> that 
a lot of these people, especially people that are gendered in a certain way and perceived gender wise are not believed and then are like, oh, it's okay. Like this person can just do that when that's not actual A accountability, that's not even restorative or transformed justice. So like for those who don't know, transformed justice is changing the means and the systems that are at play versus like just say, but versus just like reform and it's not necessarily relying on like court systems or or the police, et cetera, which can be empowering for some folks, but also I've heard stories where like it just did not go so well at the same time. Right. It's an alternative to the carceral system where you try to work within a framework of bringing the wronged party and the alleged wronger together with additional people to sort of ensure accountability around the process and figure out what in the system can change or what in their interactional system can change with people around them to um, verify that those changes are actually happening in order to hopefully ensure that whatever happened doesn't reoccur in the same manner. And there's also just, I feel like generally, but especially because because of like the whole non-monogamy, we got to be holier than thou or whatever attitude, people don't want to call out people who are abusive, who are rapists within the community because like, oh, it tarnishes the rep that we already have with monogamous people. But I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Monogamous people are going to think what, what they want to think if they're mononormative regardless <laughs> right people who are bigoted against us will be bigoted against us regardless so being like only poster child polyamory is allowed to exist in public does not actually assist us in keeping our community safe whereas calling out people who are mistreating members of our community or potentially calling them in to justice systems that we can have better control over depending could potentially help our community move forward um, and that's sort of the situation we get stuck in a lot of the time is that people are like well we don't want to make a big publicity stink and how dare you call out this pillar of the community because a lot of the times the person who does damage is someone who is to some extent of a higher power level than you. Like it's not always the famous author we were alluding to earlier, but sometimes it is someone who is uh, of a gender that has more privilege, privilege than you, of a profession that has more privilege than you, of an age group that has more privilege than you, right? Mm -hmm. And so they go, oh, who is this person that is in some way of a higher power structure than you who would look better if they were our publicity figure we can't call them out mm -hmm. and then you end up in the and and you've usually got two or three people who are friendly with that person going but they're such a nice person which that's the thing mm. abusers don't abuse every individual they've ever met they create a situational circle where they are kind to the people who they are not abusing 
so that the person they're abusing is not believed. Mm -hmm. And they also isolate the person that they're abusing so that the person can't necessarily reach out for resources or they're scared to. Right. So that the person is less likely to report them or when they go to get help from friends or whatever, they're no longer close with those friends or those family members or whatever, right? It becomes a situation where they're afraid to go back to those people or where those people are less likely to hear them. Mm -hmm. And some of that is easier in polyamory because polyamory is enough of an alternative uh, lifestyle or love style rather, where sometimes your family doesn't approve of it. And so you sort of automatically distance them from a conservative family or what have you. And then you can use crosstalk or triangulation to isolate them from metas who would otherwise be part of their support system. And things like this can be really damaging. Definitely. And that isn't to say that like everybody needs to be kitchen table and best friends and whatever all the time, but like, if someone is actively trying to shit talk your metas to you all the time, it is like a red flag that you should perhaps notice. Mm-hmm. Are there particular ways of reaching out to friends, local community, or services that you suggest that people do if they realize that they're in an abusive situation? Because sometimes I think the first thing is realizing that you're in one. Because I know for me, it took until I was basically out of my situation to recognize it as abusive. Yeah, for me, it was a similar circumstance where I had to be removed from the situation to realize, wait, this is fucked. And especially like the the abuser that I was with, like thinking a long-term partnership and monogamish with, Like that took me up until this year, literally this year slash last year to realize, oh, that was an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And also he was trying to triangulate people, even though it was fairly monogamous, but also like, even though there's like, no, it's not necessarily in the most polyamorous context, there was still like a through line. Um, There's an organization called, okay, what is it called? It's called, not the red line, the red something. Um, It's an organization that Polly Pages uh, teamed up with last year to talk about abuse and polyamory. And just within the U.S., there is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which just like last week, I'm going to throw that information in the show notes because it's available both as a hotline and online. Um, If you suspect that you may be a victim of domestic violence, which doesn't have to be physical necessarily, you can communicate with them uh, in order to help identify and understand relational abuse. So the organization I'm thinking of is the Network La Red, LA Red, or La Red. Okay. And they have a chat function as well as a, um, what's it called? as well as like you can call them. Yep. And I think a lot of uh, these interpersonal violence and um, 
what's it called domestic partner violence hotlines are moving toward simultaneously having chat and um hotline functions because so many people now only have privacy when it's through their smartphones mm-hmm. and even then in sort of a limited capacity where it may be safer to like communicate through your phone and typing than uh, at full volume talking mm-hmm. but in sort of a general way, I think in my local community, we have been pretty good about believing people when they leave a relationship because of abuse, but the situation that's been really hard or that I've seen very mixed reactions to has been when people have, upon leaving a relationship, and not sort of claiming abuse as the term said that they've been sexually assaulted within the context of a relationship especially if it's not a super formal relationship if it's a casual relationship or a play partnership Mm -hmm. and they've been like i was assaulted this has happened a bunch in the greater kink community that i'm a part of Um, and a little bit in our local polyamorous community, which has a lot of overlap. It's kind of a stack of pancakes. Um, And it's been really disheartening to see the level of people really not believing survivors and of people immediately jumping to, okay, let's line up character witnesses for the person accused of these things. And if you can get enough in a row then the accusation disappears regardless of what else happened regardless of whether or not the accusation made any kind of coherent sense regardless of whether the person doing the accusing also is an equally good person worthy of being listened to and like you don't have to be a good person to be listened to you know what i mean Mm -hmm. bad people get essayed as well yeah (laughs) That's definitely Um, something that I've noticed from my experience as well. Like in the first situation where I was assaulted in college under this friends with benefits situation, I didn't come out about it for a while. I like questioned myself was like, I like was really hard on myself, but also didn't have support at the same time. And then when I did come out about it, people were like defending this person. And this was like in a leftist political space too and like the the those spaces even the most political spaces are not absolved from this shit right it's the everyone immediately asks is this assault bad enough to count as assault is this person bad enough for us to let you accuse this person in any way shape or form and like people don't have to be politically repugnant to you and not a good person who you'd want to have a beer with for them to have violated someone's consent Mm -hmm. and so i just think it's important while we talk about this to make that point because while yes every once in a while and by every once in a while i mean in a very very small percentage of cases there is extremely occasionally a misunderstanding or what we in the kink scene call a consent accident, which means like you negotiated up to a very specific point and went a tiny bit past that specific point and then 
apologized, negotiated some kind of uh, recompense, and the person whose boundaries were overstepped then felt that the recompense wasn't meant or met versus like a true consent violation, which is like you ignored my boundary, you went way past it, and you did a bunch of things that we didn't uh, negotiate, right? Mm -hmm. Which would be like an assault of any kind or mm -hmm. doing a whole activity we didn't say we were going to do. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between you said you would hit me 10 times and hit me 12 mm -hmm. versus you got out a whole different toy and then doubled it, right? Yeah. Every once in a while, someone's like, this consent accident happened and I'm going to call them a consent violator for the next five years because I don't like them. But that's extremely rare, mm -hmm. right? It's much more yeah. common that something actually happened, regardless of how much you like someone. Definitely. And so I just want to be clear that, like, that's real and it's a thing and, like, extremely likable people do bad things. My abuser was an extremely likable person. I assume he still is. He just doesn't live on this continent anymore. So I don't know for sure. Um, and I'd rather not know. Um, but like extremely likable, life of the party, wonderful, everyone's favorite, pretty much. Still abusive. Right. And like from conversations I had with other people who he'd been with in romantic contexts in the years just before me later, not just to me. So it's one of those things where you can never know if you're not the person going through it. Definitely. Agreed. And believing people is really important. Mm-hmm. Beyond believing people, I'm not sure whether there is like a community-wide solution I can possibly suggest because believing people sounds too pat and too neat, mm -hmm. but it is the fundamental basis of anything else we would suggest. Do you have sort of action steps beyond that that you would suggest to folks? I think that having more conversations like this that we're having and talking about and also like paying people who do talk about survivorship so for example alicia from polyamorous black girl like please pay her she's fucking awesome and she like i know she has a workshop coming up on abuse and polyamory mm -hmm. and so like she's also a therapist um and so like that's super important like We'll also listen to survivors who put out solutions so like something that may work in some contexts so like there's organizations so for example something an organization could do is to offer a recompense financially because when you're a survivor and you go through all this stuff like now i do acupuncture bi-weekly and that's a lot of money like that my insurance doesn't pay for. And then there's therapy, which I did weekly for like three years. That was a lot of money for me to spend. Even on slide and tail, it was a lot of money, especially as someone who just came out of school. And then also, what other things? Also, like if 
someone does come to you, have, like, if you're an organization, have a set of protocol that you're going to follow and what that looks like. And also, like, sometimes people don't want to put a name to the report, and that's okay. Right. And, like, having that option. At events should always be allowed. If you're an event that is running, like, if you're running an event, you should always have a team in place to handle situations like this. And your first response shouldn't be to require people to file a police report because lots of people don't want to deal with the police at all, much less instantly. Mm-hmm. Also, reporting is traumatizing, no matter if it's like going to the police or or even like formal reporting like Title IX, for example. Yep. I went through that for one of the situations that I was in and that I had been assaulted and uh, emotionally abused in, but it was a very traumatizing experience. And I know people who've also gone through that experience who wouldn't want to go through it again. And I know that those institutions are definitely not equipped. If there was a, for, for instance, if there was a situation where it's a polyamorous relationship and there's multiple people in the relationship and there's sexual assault, intimate partner violence happening and you like went to report it to like a institution and, and office like title nine they're definitely not gonna, they can't even take monogamous situations like right so like i don't think they can even handle polyamory i would be surprised if any office could handle polyamory with the care and respect that it needs right you would have to be extremely lucky to find an office that handles your concerns with any kind of sensitivity that it really deserves because you can barely get that in a monogamous context if you're lucky. Yeah. And that's like, what, 5% of people? (laughs) Maybe less? Right. The monogamous context only gets it if they think you seem like the right kind of victim at the right time and it seems like the right kind of crime. And then also something that organizations can do is hiring survivor educators who are actually survivors and not just the white cis het ones because someone who's white cis het is going to have a different experience from someone like me who's non-binary and asian but Mm -hmm. also is perceived as a woman like that's a very different experience Mm -hmm. so like hiring people that aren't just white cis het women because again we're gonna hear this whole narrative of like the perfect survivor but like no one can be the perfect survivor i'd rather be a bad survivor than a perfect survivor right and like if even white cishet women complain about not being the perfect survivor imagine how much it's amplified and i'm saying this to the listeners like just imagine how many times it gets amplified for anyone who's outside of those lines in any category I just, it doesn't get taken seriously by most institutions, every level that you go up in terms of like an intersection. Mm -hmm. That's so true. It just, so like, I have a friend who is a queer woman who uh, went through the horrors of trying to report a quote-unquote corrective rape that she went through while we were in university and just it was like at every step 
she was treated poorly throughout it basically because while in theory the office was on her side and like the actual mental health professionals that worked through the with the office were on her side the like administrators and whatever clearly did not take it seriously at all mm-hmm. and just if that's what happens in such a blatant case in north american countries that in theory have all of the rights for gay people it's wild yeah and then also something that people can do is offer so like in schools for example they can just offer accommodations without like needing to go to the disability office because like i don't know i don't want to tell my tell more trauma to like other people and like i was really lucky when i was in my last semester that professors were accommodating i like didn't tell them directly what happened but they they could they could understand and they understand that i didn't want to report it at the time so i like did it in a roundabout way and so mm-hmm. the same thing can go for organizations especially like in the kink scene and the polyamorous community like just give accommodations to those who need it and like come up with like something that you might need to say to the other person who was harmful in that situation like hey we don't have xyz this is why this has happened we're investigating it or whatever the whatever the the process is and protocol but first you have to make up a protocol of course <laughs> right but make up a protocol and set it up such that like while this is under investigation for xyz period the person who did the harm or whatever doesn't attend YZ events for that period of time. And then once it's over, you know, once the investigation is concluded, you determine what happens after that or whatever your current protocol is. Mm-hmm. And I say that really glibly. There are certainly lots more nuances to it than just that. But some things are simpler to do. Mm -hmm. like not making people be in a room with somebody who they just had to do a report on you know like yeah I feel like that should be common sense but it's not common sense to a lot of people surprisingly right exactly there's lots of people who don't do the thing that we both just said were common sense so uh, you know so it's one of those things where in general it feels like our culture could be much more supportive of survivors because we end up stuck in this loop of how do we, so it feels like we get caught in this sort of ugly extension of mononormative patriarchal culture that says not to believe survivors while our subculture that in theory is taking apart all of these norms mm-hmm. hasn't gotten as far as doing that to the degree that we would like, mm-hmm. right? And I think in some ways we're doing a little better at it, right? Over the years I have seen improvements in it, mm-hmm. but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, we definitely have like a long way to go and also like I think as someone who was like newer to non-monogamy three years ago, I thought that there wasn't people like me for a long time who are survivors who do non-monogamy. Because for me, it's been empowering, even though like that sounds like so wild to say, or it might sound really wild to some people that like I'm saying like 
oh yeah, polyamorous empowering. Because it is because these are the choices that I didn't get to make before. Obviously that's not everyone's story, but this is just me and my Mm -hmm. personal experience. But yeah, like that's something that like, I feel like a reaction that sometimes people are like, wait, what? You've been abused and you still find this like um, empowering for yourself? But like, I was even abused within a polyamorous context and I still find it empowering to be within a non-monogamous context and build my relationships for myself. Because for me, that feels like I get to build and co-create with my partners each of these relationships in a way that feels like I have more control than I would if I was mononormatively following every step of the relationship escalator. Definitely. And I understand that for some people that's just not true and it's just, well, do your partner selection and you'll be fine, mm-hmm. right? But to me, that still feels like not appropriate control for my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that that's something that I'm working on in therapy. But <laughs> everyone has their own journey, right? Like, mm-hmm. And for me, this sort of independence and co-creation of different relationships feels appropriate to me right now mm-hmm. and that so makes I think, a lot of sense yeah and i think it can be really empowering for people to sort of feel like they're picking up and choosing which relationships are going to be sort of attachment relationships and where they're going to be with people who they can sort of co-regulate with Versus which ones they're going to be like, well, I don't need to be a whole ass person with you. I'm just going to be a fun person over here. I will be around every few weeks when we're going to go do activity, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the ability to balance those two things is important for me. Yeah, healing isn't linear either, as I've been realizing these last couple months. And for me with polyamory, it's been centering myself, which like in mononormative relationships, I didn't necessarily get, like that wasn't even, that's not even like an option that I learned about until I like learned about non-monogamy and polyamory. And for me, being in polyamorous relationships means, okay, centering myself, getting to understand what I'm feeling and how that relates to my boundaries and what boundaries I need and what Mm -hmm. things that I need in that moment and also what things I desire Mm -hmm. and what I dream about because that's that didn't necessarily happen for me in the monogamous mononormative context and I feel like polyamory and non-monogamy there's more that freedom there that you can like you know this is not just about even if you have like an anchor partner like it's still about centering yourself whereas you don't normally hear that in mononormative partnerships or relationships right there's a post on my blog that i wrote in like 2020 at some point that was i think i called it what my favorite thing about polyamory is or something like that that was literally just polyamory literally gives me permission to be selfish and not in a bad way but just to center myself because monogamy never gave me permission to do that Mm -hmm. and like especially for female identified to the world right whether it's how we identify or how the world looks at us people that's not an option we're ever given like Mm -hmm. sometimes 
the world is like, okay, individual man, you may center yourself. Mm -hmm. But people who were socialized as female, no, mm -hmm. we're just not allowed. And so it's been nice for me to go, oh, wait, I'm allowed. Cool. Yeah. So thank you for coming and talking with me about all of this, because I think it's important, as you said, for giving visibility to survivors within a polyamorous context in case people still feel like they're the only one. And also just because having honest conversations about these things are the only way it kind of gets out there. Definitely. Um, Everyone should follow Sydney at their page, uh, at Sexy Soup Dumplings, which is on Instagram and TikTok. Because I, your extremely ADHD host, uh, procrastinated too long on the release of this episode, uh, Sydney's response about their other projects they were working on is now extremely out of date. But thanks to them again for coming on and chatting with me about this uh, heavy topic. And you can find them and all of their work as a chef, a pleasure curator, and sex worker uh, at their websites, sexysoupdumplings.com and eatwithdialim.com. You can find all of their various links in the show notes, um, and all of their work is informed by their non-monogamy practice experiences in survivorship and their ancestral roots in Hong Kong including uh, their work as a chef. So I appreciate Sydney coming on and talking with me about this. I don't have any particular sort of big classes or time-limited things coming up, but the new recordings of classes have just started getting posted in my Ko-Fi shop. The one on polyamory and parenting is already up, and some new ones are launching later this week and next week. So if you have been waiting on seeing particular classes that you couldn't make the dates of, keep an eye out there. That's on my Ko-Fi, which you can find the link to in my link tree, which is also in the show notes. Okay. Have a great day, everybody. And thank you so much for listening.